1: they inspire people to pursue a healthy lifestyle by helping them identify their purpose, maximize their potential, accelerate their growth, and continue in the cycle. In other words, they help people IMAC their life. So, if you've got some hidden talent and you're looking for a safe place to express, own, and display your talent, shoot them an email at the Behind the Wheel show at gmail.com. If you're an entrepreneur or small business owner or know of an entrepreneur a small business owner looking to advertise in the Behind the Wheel podcast, but weren't certain as to whether or not there was a possibility, we have eliminated all the guesswork. It certainly is a reality. Who's this we you're talking about? You know it's just you. I not. we're going to go with we. We now have, we going with we? I think we're going to go with we. Let's try. We now have the ability for you to sponsor an episode. How cool is that? Your ad can run pre, mid, or post-roll. Simply visit coffee.com forward slash BTW podcast. The details will be in the show notes. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash BTW podcast. And one of the cool things about coffee.com is it allows supporters of the show to buy me a cup of coffee. You all know I like coffee. So, Shout out to LaToya Shantae, Soul Inspired, Kimberly Hall, and Kim Isaiah. That's why I'm all hyped up on this call. Good morning and welcome back to another
0: episode of Behind the Wheel. I'm your host, Derek Oxley, and I'm here today with a special guest. He is a legend in the running community. It's been around, well, say, I don't want to say been around for years, like that going it's old. Well, oh, I just used the greeting formula. Yeah, but yeah. anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ralph Lyons. <clears throat> for Mr. Lyons, how you
2: doing today, sir? I'm doing wonderful, thank you. Wonderful. Cannot complain. Most of life is good. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I've been following you for some time now on online and always insightful posts. Uh, so for those folks who may not be familiar with you, I want you to tell me a little about yourself, how you started on this road to running.
2: Well, my running career started uh, unbeknownst to me, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, One day at the end of college, I had a couple of friends on the, a couple of my roommates were on the track team. So I didn't, you know, uh, decide to go on the track team. I actually went down for crew one day as as a freshman and uh, talked to the coach. He said, uh, well, um, I think uh, how much you weigh here, let's figure you out here. So you're 125 pounds if you lose a couple, you can be the cocks. And you can just yell, stroke, stroke. I said, but you know, they throw the cocks in the water at the end of every successful race. So I said, hmm, Charles River is kind of cold. So let me think about that. So that was- Would kinda, you swim yeah. at that point? That, uh, that was the, yeah, I, I could swim. But yeah. that was the end of my college uh, athletic career, pretty much. I just stayed in the band and did other stuff that was fine. It was pre-med and all that. But at the end of college, one of my truck roommates said, Let's go running three miles today. I said, well, I can't do that. I said, sure you can. Let's go. I said, what the heck? Who knows? So I ran three miles. That's not hard. I kind of like that. So he went home for the summer and, and I just started running with a friend that summer. Just stayed in Boston a couple of weeks. And before I know it, I was running six miles and I never called myself a runner though. I just, it just felt good. And I kept it all up through medical school, run two, three miles, a couple days a week. And it just felt normal. Mm -hmm. In fact, I didn't feel quite normal looking back on it if I didn't run. So finished up that, had a kind of a grueling uh, uh, phase of training. Uh, I moved away from Atlanta for a while and um, came back. And I saw all these people doing this thing called the Peachtree. There's like 50,000 idiots out there running (laughs) on the 4th of July. And I said, why on earth would they want to do that? Don't they know it's hot, humid, hilly? Mm. hmm. Let me go find out. <laughs> so my next reaction after signing up was, oh, snap. Now I have to train. I have to- <laughs> so trained a little bit. Uh, got in the middle of that Peachtree Road race running up the hill on Peachtree Street. Mm-hmm. I passed by a lady that looked like she was about 85 if she was a day. Just mm-hmm. this big old smile on her face. And uh, all of a sudden, the light bulb went off. I said, I get it. People are just celebrating. They're just celebrating whatever they have in life. Doesn't matter how fast, how slow you are. And maybe that's what being a runner is all about. So from that day on, I started calling myself a runner because that was my first road race. (laughs) So I think the difference between a jogger and a runner, I've heard, is just just a, a race ticket, pretty much. So I started running formally after then, or at least calling myself a runner. I just ran 10Ks, 5Ks, and and, then met some people when I moved to a different side of town. One of my neighbors who uh, said, you know, we got this running club. I'm like, I don't have time for that. I'm busy, busy, busy. I'm a doctor, but maybe one day. So he constructed this run when he hosted to go right past my house so that I couldn't escape seeing it on a Saturday morning. So I woke up Kinda and I so. saw what are all these people running past my house, said, ah, let me put on my shorts and go with them. So mm-hmm. I ran with them. And that was the South Fulton Running Partners, a legendary group. Not,
0: is, is that one of the oldest or is the oldest? Uh, is,
2: uh, we feel and no one's been able to dispute this, the oldest uh, extant uh, black running group in the country founded in 1979. So, uh, these guys have been running forever, and women, by that point in time, started with a couple of guys just running on the street corner for their health, and and uh, just four of them got together and decided they'd make a running club, and uh, it was good for them. And uh, so later on, they incorporated women, and uh, the, the rest is kind of history. Women made the club a lot better, even though there was a lot of resistance to adding women. Why
0: while. is, why is, why was that?
2: Was that just the times that we were Ooh, that's kind of an interesting story. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. The guys kind of like to be guys in some ways and, you know, use the language as they please. And uh, I think some guys were honestly using it as a cover story for other activities that they were uh, doing on Saturday morning. And, um, <laughs> I will go no further than that. <laughs> so uh, women would bust them or rat them out. and, and mm-hmm. uh, So there was a lot of resistance to letting women in the club. But once the first woman got in the club. They realized, hey, this is going to be way more good than we ever thought. They, they can actually organize things, and you know, and the, the club uh, just prospered after that. Just people started joining. Although well, we kept it small and intimate through the years, and that kind of fit with where I was. There weren't any other running clubs in, in the city at the time, mm-hmm. so we, for years and years, were just like the only uh, only game for African Americans running in town. But I never gave it that much thought. I just knew that it felt like home to me. And uh, these folks took me to places that I would have never gone on my own, you know? They, they get you asking questions like, why not? Rather than the why question. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been my favorite question as a, a runner, athlete, triathlete, whatever. It's better to ask why not? and uh, You can just go so much farther in life just doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. So you go up during an interesting time. Here. You know, you, you, you kind of hop skipped from Georgia and then you wind up in Boston. Um, yeah, rip, rip, what what school did you attend in
2: Boston? I ended up at Harvard University, so mm-hmm. this is quite a culture shock for me. I grew up in you know small southern city, Savannah, right down by the coast, but I had a connection with Boston. Um, my uh, father went to school, went to high school in Boston. And uh, so I have a bunch of family that had moved up there. That's the reason he went to high school. But back in the 40s, I think it was, one of his uncles moved up there, an uncle and an aunt, which um, they uh, called him Percy the Liberator. So Percy the Liberator was the first to leave the South and uh, invite others to come up. So there started a nucleus of people on my father's side of the family there. So he went to high school there. And so I knew people there that, you know, through family reunions and whatnot through the years. So I said, this would be a cool place. There's 50, 60 colleges there. And uh, so I was able to get in and and, um, it was a big culture shock to, to be there. But it was it was good. It was good for me when all was said and done. So I loved it. So you you grew up during the time of of segregation and... and Absolutely. So from kindergarten through fourth grade, the the city was entirely segregated, right down to all the religious schools. mm -hmm. So I went to a Catholic school and the Catholic school was segregated. While there was a white Catholic school on the other side of town, I never asked as a fourth grader and uh, why there was a Baptist school that was segregated and wouldn't let any Blacks in. And they, they had some biblical passages that alluded to the why. And <clears throat> their, their passage, or at least their thought processes, as I've heard it, was that God was angry with Job, turned him Black. Black is no good. Therefore, Blacks can't come here. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wow. It's Job. I,
0: I, I, thought it, I thought it... I've heard Noah... And his son. and I, I never heard that Job was was the bad was the black guy in um in the story. But I guess everybody can extract whatever they want. And-
2: they can carry <laughs> and shade whatever they want it to be. I've decided, but yeah. In the fifth grade, my uh, parents decided to make me a part of this great experiment called integration. Uh, it was even pre-busing. There wasn't even busing that year. So my neighbor and I. Uh, A young lady that lived around the corner was in the fourth grade, and I was in the fifth. And uh, I never forget that first day. Her father drops us off at the schoolyard, and we're walking through the schoolyard, and people just start calling us names. And I'm turning around. I'm really confused. I'm in the fifth grade. I don't think I even knew I was black. And if I had a dim awareness of it, it didn't bother me. I mean, I was in a nice family. My parents loved me. I was in a nurturing environment. So... It never dawned on me that there was any major differences here until that first day of school. So I think my friend got most of the attention because she was about a foot taller than everybody else for her grade level. So I kind of mm-hmm. knocked under the radar and got there, <clears throat> sat down in my seat on the first day of school, about three or four rows back from the front. And one of the guys comes from the front of the room, rubs his hand across the top of my head, and says, God, cool. Would have thought he was going to get an electric shock from it, right? So I sat there for a minute. I walked back up to his seat, and I rubbed my hand across the top of his head. And I said,
0: God, cool. <laughs>
2: Guess he'd never been that close to a Black person in life. But mm-hmm. something impressed me. I think he was just in genuine wonder about Blackness mm-hmm. at the time. So we got to be good friends. Turns out his parents were... You know, pretty liberal people. His father was a doc in the community. His mom was a teacher. And so next thing I know, these liberal white folks were doing something unusual for the time, inviting me over to their house. Mm. Now, turns out he had seen a black person before. Their maid was black. But um, we got to be Trekkie fans together, so. Star Trek? Yep, Star Trek. So we uh, were constantly visiting one another and pretty good pals for the, the next two years. In the sixth grade, um, I decided I would run for class president. Uh, being that I'd integrated the school, what possessed me to think that I don't know? Uh, but they weren't ready for Obama. Obama. What was
0: what was your slogan? Do you remember your slogan back
2: then? Yes, uh, Bill Robertson, who was my friend from that day one in fifth grade, was my campaign manager. We made he made little buttons that said. There's no denying we need Ralph Lyons for president. (laughs) I think the slogan had something to do with it, not Chicago. (laughs) it, it, It wasn't me, it was the slogan.
0: It was the slogan. And, and your campaign manager. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, maybe. Maybe I needed to get a new campaign manager, but it, it was it was hilarious when you look back on it. Yeah,
0: no denying we need Ralph Lyons. So now, did you know you were a part of an experiment or you were just going to the school? Or there a- I kind of knew. You have a dim
2: awareness. Your parents tell you what to do when you're in the fourth and fifth grade, and you don't question them too much. They have uh, brainwashed you sufficiently by that age where you think it's a good idea, so... Uh, no, I didn't even question it. They said it was a good idea. I figured they had my best interest at heart. So there we there we went. So even the Catholic schools a year or two later decided that, yeah, it's okay to take these Black people in. Maybe uh, times are changing on us. This is around about 1965. So, you know, those are the times back then.
0: And so you see, I remember seeing um, Malcolm, I guess this is just Spike Lee's, version or take on it, he's in the classroom and, and he's telling his teacher he wants to be a, I think it's an attorney and said, no, why don't you be a carpenter? You know, Jesus was a carpenter. Um, So what what gave you the idea, you know, you wanted to be a doctor. Did you, Were you met with uh, any obstacles or well, I'm sure you met with obstacles or you resistance know, or redirection?
2: Only, uh, I think that I'm, I'm just lucky. I think it's no fault you know, mine that I was just born with good parents. They, they called uh, the cohort that my parents were involved in at the time of, of parents and students. Uh, they called us upwardly mobile. That was, that was what they mm-hmm. called us at the time. Folks that are starting here and wanted to get there. So they, they had us sufficiently brainwashed by the time we got to high school that, you know, you knew you were going to college. You didn't know why, but you knew that was just the normal thing to do. Just, that's just what you did. And as after that, it's you choose your professional career. So choosing to be a doctor, teacher, lawyer, those were the things within the the paradigm, the role models in the community that I could see. There were black doctors in the community. There's certainly lots of teachers that uh, were well respected in the community at the time. So you, you couldn't really think outside the box too much. I couldn't have thought that I wanted to be a newscaster or things that were not within my purview role models. So I think you sort of gravitate towards what you can see in your mind and uh, once you get your head above water, so to speak, to be able to see that it's really possible for you. and if you have an interest, then you just pursue it and uh, you... You rely on that background of brainwashing to to go forth with it. (laughs) Brainwashing is not all bad. Uh, When I arrived at college, uh, it was the age that apartheid was being protested. So in the middle of all of that, we got to hang out and protest and we wanted our school to divest of all of their stock invested in companies that were in South Africa at the time to help dismantle apartheid. So. It was, a, it was a good culture to be in. It was, you know, a protest culture, a you know, slightly different stripe, but it was, it was a good place to be. It's, it's good to be in the formative year so that you can see the value of it um, mm-hmm. looking back over it.
0: Yeah, so there's this um, balance of, I, I, I wouldn't have taken you for, an activist protest. You know, it's, it's sort of like low-key behind the screen, almost like there's a shadow here. Who's no. Scott? You know,
2: basically a nerd.
0: I'm <laughs> <laughs> <A> Trekking. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. No, it's cool. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I like nerds. i probably a nerd myself, but anyhow. So when I, when I, when I post things or just the insight that you, that you provide uh, online. Your take on our current environment. It's part of the reason I showed to share uh, your experience with uh, I think with it comes lives. from
2: a place of your experience and your past. It comes from you know what what life your parents lived. You look at what their their challenges were in life, and you, you look at what their strivings were for a better world and. You know, they lived in a really much tougher world than, than we live in now. My, my mother was a pretty fair-skinned person, and my father and my mother traveled, you know, when we were young, and I remember them telling me stories where uh, there's places that you couldn't stop. That movie, The Green Book, is really real. They had to use that green book to figure out where they could stay and spend the night if they were traveling. Plane travel wasn't common back then. People drove. So whenever they had to stop to get gas or run to a store, my mother was the one that ran into the store because she could blend in, so to speak. And my father couldn't. And those, those stories just never leave you over time. My father was pulled over by a policeman locally. Uh, my sister told me when she was in the car just last night, she said the man had his hand on his gun, really shook up my father, just let you know that no matter how how you rise in the community. And my father was a very prominent businessman in the community. He was successful at a time in real estate when no one else was. He was really the pioneer black realtor uh, in the city of Savannah. Uh, So no matter how, where you are in society, it brings you back down to earth sometimes when you hear this story about the power structures of the world. So you kind of see the bigger and bigger pictures as you go along and You know, you you see the macro scale when you get to college and you say, gee, you know, racism really is systemic if you've got apartheid. We're maybe not apartheid, but, you know, we've got redlining and things that were immediately um, detrimental at large to people of color. We didn't live in integrated neighborhoods back then, and I didn't question why. But now you know why as time goes on, because it wasn't even within the possibility for so many people. And that's just generations of, of wealth that was not achieved. So systemic racism, you, you give it a label later on in life, <laughs> and you're able to, you're just making empiric observations when you're when you're young and, and as you grow older with it all. So yeah. Um, You know, we knew that we had to be twice as good. That's just something that was instilled in us uh, explicitly, implicitly, and and by the culture that we lived in, in order to survive and be prosperous. I found myself uh, trying to educate a person of color who thought that no oppression existed uh, about a few things, even this morning. I was upset that she thought that no oppression existed. I said, well, you know, that's just not my lived experience. Uh, my father, in fact, was very fortunate starting in business that there were there was a black bank in town so that you could get money to fund and grow your business. If there wasn't a black bank, it wouldn't have been possible for him. So back when he came along, he started his real estate business in the 1950s. So he was the only one there. Um, a year before he started, there there was an organization called the. the the Realtors, the National Association of Realtors, but you couldn't join that as a Black person. Mm. So Another chapter called Realtist, just sort of a variation of the name, uh, developed an organization in Florida. So he became the second chapter in the U.S. having decided he'd formed his own chapter of Realtist in Savannah, nurtured a lot of young people into business uh, as they came along and nurtured them, and they have been still giving an award, I think, until this day in honor of my father. He's long deceased for 20 years, but, mm. but just in, in appreciation for the things that he did to nurture other Black people unselfishly into business. So, you know, that's, that's a part of stuff that's really no fault of mine, but I feel obliged to, to use that platform, use that knowledge, as you can see things at 30,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And to, to educate people as gently as I can, for those that are not educable, I uh, have learned to write them off at least at this point, because I have more years behind me than I have years ahead of me. <laughs> yeah.
0: So were you able to um, change her thinking or view or she this person though?:
2: I don't know. Um, I I just uh, tried to be gentle. I I found that if you insult people, it turns them off and and they're not open whatsoever. Uh, But my final sentence was well, I like to just give people a different lens with which to view things with historically uh, whenever possible. And I just left it like that. If they're open, they will grow on their own. If they're really closed, it just isn't going to happen. And and, uh, I've got to. Uh, make space for other good, positive things that I can do and leave that alone. So I don't think I make much ground on Facebook.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 t- it's, it's tough soil <laughs> sometimes. Tough it seems soil. Like. Not fertile soil. <laughs> Not fertile soil and oil sometimes, it seems that way. Uh, but we're living in a time where, where, where it seems like there's this elitism in it and, and trying to, I guess... You know, this liberal elites seem to, like, get a... make a, going to school or educate yourself seems like that's a bad thing now. And, you know.
2: Yes, it's sort of two parts of it. One is this whole anti-science uh, uh, emphasis by people on, on the right-hand side who some are contrived and some are just ignorant and, and uh, haven't had enough education to, to think for themselves a little bit better and then there are the there truly is a bit of a, a liberal elite that think they know best that's when i what i think of when i think of the when i think of liberal elite i think of people in the democratic party that really do take our vote for granted sometimes and really do not at their core believe that we're equal in many ways if not better in so many ways so there is a A paternalistic approach to us, which is not very helpful, and so kind of insulting. (laughs) It is insulting. We have to maintain our independence, Mm -hmm. and we have to stop at times and make people earn our vote in in ways that we should, in order to keep them honest and um, uh, be our own power brokers, so to speak. If you want us, this is what what you got to do, what you got to think, and this is how you have to relate. Let's teach you how to relate to us. So I think we need more of that. And uh, I, I hope for that as time goes on. I hope to harness a lot of this mad energy that's been going on to something that we can channel.
0: Yeah, because it seems like there's this constant left-right debate and, you know, primarily I noticed it now with this cancel culture. And recently there was a, uh, a letter that was at Harper's Magazine put out and they got a bunch of... Authors to kind of sign on to it, and it was about cancel culture. And as soon as some people realized that they that they potentially would be canceled because they signed the letter about cancel culture, they uh, started trying to distance themselves from the letter. Which is like the only and one of my one of my you know one of my one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Gladwell, was on the list, so he signed the letter. It's like I thought that was the whole point. Of the letter, I looked at the list and there's some people, you know, who are on the list that I didn't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just casting, so that's what, I thought that was the whole point of it. And so people was like, no, I don't, I, don't, I was mistaken. I apologize. I like,
2: that's <laughs> about you. That's we, about we, you, it's not me. <laughs> no, me? No, I don't want to be cast.
0: <laughs> no, no, I, I want to stay and continue to write. So it's like, okay, this is just, because, then you had folks who like, well, now the left is finally... You know, catching up and going, they've seen that the, the harm that I guess has come from cancer culture. And, so I just thought the whole thing was just just, just ridiculous.
2: I think it's a passing fad because it's a, it's, it's a term that's difficult for people to, like me, even to wrap my head around, you know. Mm-hmm. So we'll see, see where it goes and see what happens. It's, it's to me kind of like uh, defund the police. It's not a good moniker. Yeah. so it means different things to different people and it's a tool to be used to, to bludgeon either side whichever way you look at it and uh, something a little bit more nuanced is, is needed uh, yeah. nuanced with a catchy le- uh, label that people can understand what you mean a little better
0: yeah because hearing it it is a part of me is I get it I know what it is but here it's it's comical it sounds it's like an easy target for a joke I mean if, if, if even if you're you know, you're at home, at, around the kitchen table, and you think you're funny, or your friends think you're funny on the road, you know, on the train, riding to work or whatever. It's an easy target.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I was with, I had so hoped that someone would pick a different name, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. because it just doesn't give the kind of nuance that uh, one would need to imply from whatever term that they use, but not a good one, but you could see it coming a mile away.
0: Yeah, you, you know it's gonna be there. So. Ha- Given where the the time that you're coming up and and you see where we are now, do you you think things have changed?
2: Things (laughs) have changed, but not enough. Not nearly enough. Um, I think uh, there are some positive things uh, with regard to the African-American running community. I would say there's lots in, in the endurance community. There's lots and lots of positive things. What I've been able to see in my longevity and this uh, avocation of mine is that there is larger and ever larger amounts of people exponentially um, being proactive about their health and their longevity. And, and that's a great and wonderful thing. So we're not the only show in town. We choose to be who we are and we're going to be small and we're going to be mentors out there. So that is good. But if you go back to the larger parts of society, I think there's a lot of room to be educating our kids in a a different way to be able to deal with a world that still has great challenges in it, great, great challenges. And uh, with um, places that are um, difficult to penetrate, roadblocks, They're there, but they're just more subtle. In some ways, the Jim Crow South was a little easier because you knew who your enemies were, you knew who your friends were. Uh, People would call you a bad name, and uh, you knew who they were. In some respects, it might be moving back towards that way, but it was easier. Nowadays, it's corporate culture. You submit a very qualified resume, and someone decides that this person is a better fit than you. And uh, it's it's hard to get a handle on that sort of implicit bias. Um, and uh, move forward. Um, I'm not sure about, you know, the education of our kids, not just their school education, but maybe their education about the bigger picture of, of history that allows them to, to see the whole arc. Um, I think some of the millennials give me hope because I'm not angry at all of these people rioting in language Right is the language of the unheard, says MLK. And I think that's just, you know, people have been unheard and uh, they realize that things in the past haven't worked so well. It's sort of like Malcolm X or MLK. Is it the ballot or the bullet you guys want? So maybe some people don't want the bullet. and Maybe some people see that there's perhaps a better way. It could be a trend or a fad, but nonetheless, it's one that'll push the needle maybe a little bit more forward in this turbulent time that we're in.
0: So I, my, my parents um from Barbados in, in migrated here to the States and coming up they never talked about you know I don't I remember conversations about race, you know, black, white, nothing. It was just mm-hmm. it was just we brought you here to this country to get a better education and you know we're heading back home. And that was that was it. So in terms of just race and, and how people were treated and None of that came up, it was just, we were here um, in this
2: country. Do you think that this is um, a common point of view from people coming from uh, majority black countries, uh, like all of Africa, where race is not part of the discussion because everybody's black? you you take it for granted that in your world that everybody's black and there's you know racism is not a something that you discuss from day to day you you move for better opportunities and uh, there's maybe tribal friction and so forth that happens but when you move to another country maybe race is a, an afterthought for folks that come that are secure in who they are and who they grew up with you've not been bludgeoned at an early age you know that you're different because you weren't different. Yeah. Everybody was Black. You were you were the norm. Um, and here, uh, it's a bit of a disadvantage to some extent to to figure out that you're, by age six, that you're a little different than everybody else. And, yeah. uh, and then increasingly so as time goes on. So. Yeah,
0: so it became a shock when I was sitting in class and a teacher started, it was a white teacher in the class, he started making fun of my mother. And he called her... Casper the Friendly Ghost. And I thought it was, you know, it was a ghost because I never see her up at parent conference meetings. You know, she she wasn't engaged in that. But I didn't go home and tell my mother because I was like, she's not going to come up to the school. She, nothing's going to happen. But that's when I realized, oh, there's something there's something different here. And not being able to, you know, a young age, not being able to have the words or to be able to put it in. You just kind of live with it. Oh, okay, I see what happened. And, um, Hmm. So what do I do with this this information? Because I couldn't share it with people. Like who, who would I who would I share it with? I was like, my mother's like a with me. She's not going to school. She just said she's not going to school. So now what?
1: Hmm.
2: Interesting.
0: So as I got older, I realized you know that there was this this difference, or people felt like the people who were from the islands and I don't know where people came up with these. These notions in the head, people from the islands thought that they were better, and then people from the islands thought that uh, American, black Americans were lazy. And it's like, man, who was feeding us all of this, this misinformation?
2: Right. <clears throat> I wondered that myself. I, I think of that the most populous group of folks of color that come over are Nigerians and uh, they have many jobs and they're, they're, they're known to hustle. I hope I'm stereotyping them in a positive way um, but I sometimes feel that they look a little bit down on us African-Americans that we're not taking advantage of the opportunities that do exist and, and uh, they, maybe they don't understand how many people are just psychologically ground down from an early age and that's uh, different when you're starting so early, being pulverized as to yeah. coming over in, from a society that you have no social safety net. You mm-hmm. you better hustle or you're going to starve to death. And so it's a difference in perspective. It's kind of interesting for me to observe. And I wonder whether sometimes people from the islands feel the same way too.
0: Yeah, it was, I would, I would hear it in different households. I had friends who were from Guyana, Trinidad, Jamaica, you know, just, just all over the diaspora. And then they had some black friends. My best friend growing up with two doors from me, you know, was, was a black American. So it's, you, you, you come south and you, you just had different different experiences, different friends. Um, so just observing it was, was interesting to see when I, you know, you, going to get open and get older in life and you start interacting with different people or reading and then your mind expands and you say, oh okay now this makes sense now i have the language to kind of work with to understand what i was experiencing at that point
2: i think that's it language i think you touched upon something you don't have the vocabulary to describe your feelings and your observations until some time goes on and that's it. A- a process of, of education as well to Just education by your peers, but education in reading, things that help you to put it in perspective. You need a language to articulate what you're feeling and to transmit that to others, I think. And, and I think that's an important thing.
0: Yeah, d- definitely is during this time. I, um, I'm so glad that, that I, uh,
2: you, you mentioned a book,
0: I forget the author's name. No, I don't, Brad, uh, Bernard Shaw.
2: Bernard Shaw? Bernard Shaw, the uh, CNN uh original anchor that started that no no oh. the other, oh,
0: other yeah, shore.
2: Yeah. Oh yes, yes, yes. That's the <laughs> funny writer.
0: <laughs> the writer, the writer, yes. <laughs> I butchered his name. Um, I, I see I see him sitting there in this in this suit. But he he, he had a, a um he wasn't really keen on on grammar and but he wrote a number of plays right one of one of your fans one of your favorite authors you mentioned so
2: yes i've read some a little bit of everything i I think um i'm more of a renaissance person that is uh i think of myself that way you know perhaps uh you know I'm too vain in that regard, but that's okay. I think it keeps me interested in different things and helps me to put the pieces together of, of the world a little differently, just to read different kinds of things and different kinds of books, uh, science books to whatever philosophy books to running books to just keep your life interested and just don't get stuck, but keep reading about something or another. I think that's so important.
0: So when you look at the, uh, the running community now and where it's, it's evolved from where you started to, to where we are now, what, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are your feelings on What's your take on it?
2: I'm really excited about it. And I was happy when, I'm stumping for this one, the race came along, as you know. Um, at the time of thought processes about the race, to give you a little history about that whole thing, it, it evolved very interestingly. Our South Fulton running partners uh, decided about four years before that, that we would host a summit of all African American runners in the state or the region that wished to come up just for a Saturday run. So we did that for several years. But the first time we put the call out with social media, a couple hundred people showed up and we're mm. like, kinda oh, interesting. You're not <laughs> us forty or fifty people here. So and it resonated. So we had music and Fried fish and the stuff people love and, and fellowship. Fellowship being the glue that really binds runners together. I have told them for the last 20 years, we're really not a running club. We're really a breakfast club with a running habit. <laughs> <So> <laughs> once you get that, you know why we have survived all of those years. It's Forget about the running. We, it's we, the fish. <laughs> it's the fish, it's the breakfast, man. So after a couple of years, one of the folks in, who would come with us, who was in Black Men Run at the time, Durell Patterson, it was also a podcast hosting kind of a mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why don't we just have a panel discussion and why don't we invite some of the, you know, big running groups as they have evolved just to, you know, pick their brains, pick the brains of the whole group and see where we can take this energy next. And maybe we can do something tangible with it behind it all, like have our own race. So we held that first summit meeting and it was recorded and made into a podcast. But there was just this general feeling that we have everything we need to make a great race here. We've got social media reach. We've got enthusiasm. We have got all the expertise, people that know how to run races, people that know how to time races, people that race uh, very proficiently and people that can reach all of those folks is we have everything we need. And this is Atlanta, where things evolve from. Black triathletes evolve from Atlanta, just all, you know. Black girls run evolve from Atlanta. Black men run evolve from Atlanta. We are the cradle of civil rights and all things running, as it turns out. All things endurance sports. So we said, yeah, people want to do this. We can do this. We can make our own race. And uh, we're just going to keep it positive, and uh, that's the thing. And I said, you know, guys, it's a grand experiment, but I'm going to sign off. I was the leader of the South Hilton Running Partners at the time, and I said, I, I love this concept. You know, run through Black neighborhoods, support Black businesses, support the Black communities that have nurtured us. Make it fun, and uh, I think make it in Atlanta. This has all the formula for a great event, even though it's still an experiment. So. Mm-hmm. We have to stay together. We have to stay positive with this. We've got to give it what we can give it, and let the naysayers walk on by and not give them a second thought. So it uh, turned out to be beautiful. So yeah. I, I love it, and uh, it's just another step of evolution, of good evolution that I've been uh, proud to be a part of and, and a witness to. So it's been cool. Yeah,. You know? it-
0: it has been interesting watching the, the running community evolve throughout the years. I don't know what happened in, in 2013, but it seems to have been an explosion. You know, where, where people were starting different run groups or running clubs, starting to take their health, fitness seriously.
2: There's social media to, mm-hmm. to be able to connect in, in a way that you weren't able to connect in the past. In the old days, software softball and running partners had to get on the dial telephone. <laughs> 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 Run is it, it's at, at Johnny's house. <laughs> you <know>? That's good.
0: <laughs> I'm going to say, <laughs> that just seems so, it could have been, you guys had put, touch tone. Yeah, <laughs> <not, it was.
2: laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my God, imagine calling a hundred people.
2: Oh. oh, well, there was only 30 or 40 back then, or maybe 20 or 30, even at the beginning. So it mm-hmm. wasn't as big of a deal. Uh, but yeah, you know that's that's how it was, and they met at the same place for years and years. And they, the first guys would uh, meet there with a couple of Dixie cups, some of which they pour wine in, and you know sometimes have a few smokable substances. It was the seventies <laughs> at all, and uh, so that's the formation of the group. <laughs> so <laughs> the social aspects are the glue. <laughs> the social aspects, the breakfast, and the
0: social aspects. Oh, right. So I'm wondering, were you guys, at what point did you start running with, like, watches and tracking your times?
2: So soon his watches evolved. <laughs> that was it. It's like, we're putting it on. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm into the metrics here. I can run faster, you know, higher, whatever. And, uh, so, yeah, uh, I think right from the get-go, people adopted all the technology to help them. And I'm, I'm a fan of George Sheehan, too. I used to read a lot of George Sheehan books. Uh, he was a cardiologist that ran, and really it was a philosophy book with, about running. And I would always quote a philosopher, and then write a chapter about the, the psychology of running. And one of the things, and one of the books, struck me as true back then, and even now, is it's that people do not more often pursue the healthy behavior for the healthy behavior alone. They don't eat better because it will make them smaller, or that it will make their cholesterol better or their blood pressure better they eat better because it'll help them to catch up with bob who's running faster than they are (laughs) they want to be smaller so they won't get left behind and all the healthy things are just a a byproduct of Mm -hmm. of the enthusiasm of running and once you sort of get that mindset you realize it takes a life of its own after a while you don't have to tell people how to do healthy behavior
0: (laughs) they just they just do it automatically
2: it's motivating from within. I I, I think I I told the BGR head once I said I applaud you women because you've done more for the health of African-American women uh, than I've ever done as as a doctor you've you you know people are motivated from within uh, to to take charge of their life and to be proactive and uh, that's something that you know, I, I uh, struggle with in the office, I can give you good advice, but unless you've got something that really motivates you and gets to the core of you, if I can do that, I got you, but uh, I think you all are more successful than me at that. So I, I applaud you for making that happen.
0: It is, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch, um, hearing, hearing someone talk about uh, like yourself, your experiences from when you were coming up in, Running, I don't get this sense of. When back in my day, this is how we used to do it, and this is, it. There's, there's this openness, um, and it's inviting. You know, it, it, it's encouraging to see where, it's, okay, yeah, and somebody's thinking about running, and it can sit. It's like, wow, Ralph was there then. It's like you're sitting, you're sitting at the around the campfire, and hearing these stories, and being able to, to share your experiences because then someone else coming up. Be able to relate, and then take it to me. I,
2: I think, think that's you know. what we have to do. We have to nurture people. Sometimes uh, you have to reel them in, like you're fishing. You throw that little hook out there, and then you go slow. If you pull them too fast, they're going to fall off the hook. You can't reel them in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you just give them these encouraging uh, bits of uh, advice along the way, like like I was given, because I I realized uh, that I was able to do things that I never thought I could I could do. Sometimes. Uh, because people just kept telling me that I, that I could actually, and I said, no, I can't. And uh, after saying, no, I can't long enough, I asked that, well, why not, you know, question, and then I just go for it. I, uh, I accused one of my running partners, Alonga, who's done a heck of a lot in the community, Alonga found a way that uh, he gave me the blue juice one day and, and told me that uh, I could uh, do a, a half Ironman. The blue juice. The blue juice. It's. I call it the blue juice because blue is sort of an unnatural color and flavor in nature. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> if someone gives you the blue juice, I'm thinking, well, and it's an elixir that uh, some sort of toxic poison, but it makes you <clears> believe in yourself <laughs> that you can be Superman. And uh, <laughs> so I drank the blue juice one day and said, why not? And so hence my triathlon career was uh, launched. Mm. So.
0: So I mean, when you made the step into uh, after sipping on the blue juice, right? Did, what did your marathon um, friends think of it? You were you were abandoning them, or
2: no? Because uh, in the the running partners, people were beginning to do other things. In fact, we would do adventure races sometimes just for fun. Uh, we'd done some just fun stuff, and, and uh, so we were all kind of open spirited people. It, it's it's a why not group of people, I think, in general. So when some started branching off and getting bikes and uh, really getting to be good cyclists, they'd still come back because running was still their core. <laughs> the group, you know, is where their heart is. And no matter where they wander to other things, very few people have ever left the group and, you know, um, just, uh, you know, other than by moving away. So people uh, love it. They, they love the... the uh, the togetherness that it has given us the, the quality of life and uh, it, it's really about quality of life that you achieve with these organizations more than anything else it's it's not about running faster in the long run because your, your speed degrades believe me over time um, but your friendships never degrade yeah. so that's what's important to know and your friendships are, are what add quality and meaning to your life you do things together we do road trips together and have a great time we'd be like a uh, like a bunch of college kids, we were in our forties then, and we'd uh, we'd drink too much, stay up too late at night, and uh, we get up and uh, run again the next day. So I mean, it was just just wonderful, fun stuff, and you just mm-hmm. never forget that. Something to hold on to. It's quality living. Yeah. There's almost like,
0: do, do you think there's a, a, a religious sort of experience that happens when you start running that kind of keeps you coming back? Uh, for some, um, I don't mean different. I don't mean you're like in the in church, you know, shouting.
2: Yeah, some uh, might see a burning bush along the way and uh, have an epiphany. Uh, I think I've had a few mini epiphanies along the way. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes the epiphany comes about two thirds of the way through training, and you're you're doing that first marathon, and you're very doubtful that you can actually finish this thing. But somewhere magically, you just follow the program. Follow the program. Have the people sipping, giving you the blue juice to sip on the whole way through. Then about two thirds of the way through, you say, "Oh, I I think I can do this." And uh, and and then you do it because you've had friends that have actually gone before. You wouldn't have even conceived about it, conceived it, if you didn't have friends that have already done it. Uh, But it's just really cool. to see people do Ironman and to, to be connected by the social world, to see, oh, there's some people that have been out here for 15 or 20 years already doing, and I didn't know that. So just puts more possibilities in your mind, in your heart. And, but Your your first group never leaves you. Running is still your core, even though you love other things and you love the connections and the improvement in, in your life from the other social worlds that you or a part of, um, but you come back to your core group and all is said and done, and uh, they'll always be with you.
0: So, where, where can folks find your mem- memoirs?
2: My inbox? Your memoirs. Or oh, my memoirs. Okay. Well, I've uh, in my mind right now since I've yet to put them <laughs> in writing. <laughs> uh, but that'd be a good idea one day.
0: That's the plug. You said to plug it, right? You said,
2: thank, you, thank, you. <laughs> thank you for making the
0: it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, because it seems that like that would be uh, a story worth telling.
2: It's it's rich. I my mean, my life has been very rich, and, and uh, even the difficult parts have been rich. And I think, um, you know, you can use the difficult parts to enlighten and to help people. Guide guide them towards the future too. So you can't uh, begrudge the difficult parts. Sometimes you just have to use them and use them as constructively as you can. So yeah, I, I don't you know begrudge the difficult parts of my life. Not really when I look back on it. Um, if if I can remember to use them constructively and not get too bogged down in the day to day news cycle. So. Well, Ralph, thank you so very much,
0: and I. For- I, I mentioned to you, I've got to go and look, at, look, at the, uh, look up the name Lions. It was at, um, it was at a, a, a run yesterday in Central Park, and we were talking about Seneca Village. And when I tell you, the, the parks commissioner, uh, mm-hmm. Silverman, he mentioned the family name. And I was like, I got chills. It was like, this would be great for the story if I called you and said, Ralph. I gotta oh,
2: yeah. find out who my people are up there.
0: <laughs> I think I think this might be something I, I've got to investigate because lions, I'm like, it's not far fetched. Not a common name. It's not a common. Yeah, name. yeah. So I immediately, I, I I literally got chills. I was like, I wonder. And I was still at, I was still in Central Park when I when I sent you the message because I was I was curious. I was like, wow, this is this is something I've gotta go with now
2: Our connections go deep and wide, you know. I think I've shared with you once that you you're the spitting modern image of my grandfather on my father's side of the family. I put a a hat on you and a, an old fashioned suit and uh, <laughs> you definitely look related.
0: <laughs> oh, man. oh man. maybe I'm the grandfather reincarnated. Anyhow, yep. this, Ralph, thank you so very much for being on the it's show. Fine. I certainly appreciate you spending time with us. And when those, when, when you finally pen all your thoughts down in that book, uh, be sure to uh, reach out to
2: us. So can- I'll be back on your show then, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right.
0: Have a great day now. Yeah.
2: Bye-bye. Bye-bye.